All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you again the section where we were last week, and uh, we're going to kind of carry on, and, and then hopefully we'll move into chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 as well. But let's start off in um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and following. We'll go through verse, verse 6. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, hopefully, my prayer is, and I think we will move into verses 7 through 11 in just a little bit, and we'll read those when we get there. But I want to pick up where we left off last time and finish up this section. Uh, we're going to pick up right here in verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, where he, or verse three, where he talk, Paul talks about our needing to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we've already talked about all the other manifestations, if you will, of the fact that you're walking in the Spirit. With, last week we saw that you'd be, be humble and gentle and patient and so on. But I just want to add this real quick to what we're talking about. Satan is out to divide. Satan's purpose is to bring division. And you can see it all the way through. If you watch his handiwork all the way through the scriptures as revealed, way back into the garden, he tried to separate man and God. You know, we even see it in the book of Job. He's trying to cause division between man and God. And he, he says to God, well, that's, well, the only reason that Job worships you is because of this. And he really doesn't like you for who you are and all this kind of stuff. And of course, when he's talking to, to Adam and Eve about God, what is he saying? Hey, he's not for you. He, you know, he's actually against you. And he only said that because he doesn't. And Satan's out to divide all the way through. And man, once they fell into that trap, once they bit of whatever fruit it was that was on that tree, what happens next? All of a sudden, Adam, the same one who said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Wow. When he saw Eve says, this woman you gave me, it's her fault. And there was all of a sudden starting to be division. And all the way through, you can see it between Cain and Abel. There was division and Cain killed Abel. And all the way through, folks, look, Satan wants to divide. Keep in mind, keep this in mind, because that's why Paul says, listen to it again. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I want to take you all to a verse uh, right now and put a bookmark here. Go to Romans chapter 12 and look at verse 18. It's not going to be possible for us to never have schisms or division or dissension. But look at how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, folks, that's kind of important. I just really want you to understand, be looking for, is this moving toward fixing this situation or is this moving toward breaking the, the situation up? And that'll help you whether or not the spirit of God's really working or whether or not Satan's in control. Because again, all the way through, we, I, I, we don't have the time to look at all the different stories in the Bible, but was there division between David and his son Absalom? Yes, but what was David's attitude toward the fact that he and his son had a, had, a, had a break? David wept, and he sought to reconcile it. And the same thing we saw last week between Paul and Barnabas, they had a good disagreement. They parted ways. It was pretty heated. But the scripture shows us that he worked to fix it. So folks, there are going to be times that our flesh wins. There's going to be times that there's division, husbands and wives. You hopefully understand this. 
at the same time, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when it comes to the church, and this is important, because we're, Isaiah, we're going to be dealing with something here tonight. We're going to be taking a look at one faith, one baptism, one spirit, all this stuff. And we're going to deal with the fact that in the church today, some of these are almost laughable. I mean, we're not going to dive into it just yet, but we're going to get into one baptism. Isn't that one of the areas we fight over? We're going to get into all that tonight. So understand that the root of what's going on here as Paul goes on into these things that we're going to take a look at tonight is that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. God said, this is how men will know that you're my disciples, by your love one for another. Does the Bible say we'll all agree? No, it doesn't. Now, I have to be honest with you. Over the years, I've been preaching for 30 years, but over the years I've come to realize that a lot of times I would preach something that I believed real strongly even though the Bible didn't say it. I remember as a young, young preacher at First Baptist Indian Atlantic, I was a youth pastor back in the late 80s. And I remember preaching this sermon, and I literally said these words, if you have the same spirit that I have, we should agree. And I, man, I based my whole sermon on that. But as I've grown in my understanding of God's word and understanding how, how things really work and who's really the one doing the reconciling and it's God, I've actually come to realize that, you know what? The Bible doesn't say that we'll all agree. Actually, Romans 14 deals with the fact that some are going to see one day as more sacred than another. Another is going to consider every day alike. Some are going to think that uh, eating vegetables is the only way to go. They're going to think eating meat's okay. Some are going to be upset that I'm wearing sandals right now as I'm preaching. Other people are thinking that what's the big deal? But you know what I'm saying? There, there's going to be times we don't all see it the same. And I used to say, if you get the same spirit as I do, we'll all see it the same. But actually, aren't we all in the process of God bringing us to maturity? Isn't that what this passage says back in Ephesians? It actually talks about how we'll work our way toward the fullness of, of Christ. Every one of you would admit you're not the Christian you were when you first got saved. And you know a whole lot of things differently now than you did when you first got saved. And a lot of us, unfortunately, in our youth and our zeal, we believe it so strongly, God must too. <laughs> Paul's saying from prison, be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. I'm about to talk to you about all your differences and the fact that God has made us different for a reason. And it's a great thing when you see why he's made us different. But before I get there, I've got to remind you, don't allow these differences to cause division. There is, and as we get into here, one body in verse 4, most people think, and I kind of lean toward it, that Paul was actually quoting a hymn. Your music, folks, this was probably a song that he was quoting that was familiar to them. And he says, there's one body. Now, keep this in mind. There are not different bodies. One body of Christ. Now, does that mean that every local church, every local group of people that meet together, whether it's Calvary Chapel Surfside here that we're using their building, or whether it's First Baptist in the Atlantic down the street, or whether it's the Methodist Church or whatever, does that mean that every church is supposed to look alike? No. Actually, we all have families that we've been brought up in or that we're a part of right now. And God designed family. He designed the husband and wife relationship. He designed the family. He also designed the church and called it a family. Are all our families, do they look alike? No. And that's okay. But the problem is, is without realizing it in our zeal, without knowledge, we have over the years kind of assumed that every Christian should look like, what's the rest of that sentence? 
me. We just do, don't we? We think that they're supposed to like, yeah. <laughs> we think that they should like the same kind of music we like. They think, we think that they should like the same translation of the Bible that we like. They, we think that they should like the same time of worship, but you know, kind of preaching, dress like we dress. And without realizing it, we have started to assume that if you all were really walking with God, you would do it like I do it. But when there's one body now, as you're going to see in a little bit, there are many parts to this body. But God has brought us all together in one body. Husbands and wives, aren't you glad that your wife or your husband is not like you? I mean, at times we get frustrated with them. And isn't that where we have our biggest disagreements is when they didn't do it the way we would have done it? If you think about it, that's where you have most of your biggest issues is, you know, I know I asked you to do it, but that's not how I wanted you to do it. We just assume you would do it the way I would do it. There's one body, one body. Keep this in mind. And each local family, I think God wants it to look what he wants it to look like. See, as I travel around now and try to work with churches to help them get back to who God is and what his word says and what it means to be led of the spirit and follow him. I have to remind them and say, look, I'm not here to tell you what your church is supposed to look like because that's not my call. That's the Spirit's call. That's God's call. He's got you here for a reason and he's got you here at this time for a purpose. And my thing is, what does God want your church to look like right now for this time? But we have a tendency to try to compare ourselves with all the other congregations. Well, they've got this program or they got this ministry. We need to have that, too. Folks, we're not in competition. One of the neatest things that ever happened to me one Sunday was I was at this one church and the pastor got up and this is what he said. He said, look, we're a big church and we're capable of having a lot of different ministries, but we're only going to do the ones we believe God wants us to be a part of. And if there are other churches that are having a ministry that you want to be a part of and we're not doing it, you're very free to go and we're not mad at you. But we've realized we've wasted too much energy over the years trying to be everything to everybody and we're just going to be what God wants us to be. I sat there and said, I'm going to go to that church. Because the pastor understood. Folks, stop thinking if we're one body, they all should look alike. No, they're not all to look alike. There's one, but there's one body. And do you sometimes see how someone else is doing their family with whether or not they, they watch R-rated movies or whether or not they let their kids do this or that? And do you ever find yourself sometimes, well, I wouldn't do that? Don't you catch, don't you catch yourselves? Come on, let's be honest. That's in all of us. We, we have a tendency to, you know, our kids will come home from somebody else's house and they'll say, well, they did that over there. Oh, uh, we don't do that. And our instinct is to just think that we're the judge of how everybody else's family is supposed to be. Are you willing to trust that God, who's in control of all this through his spirit, is able to get them where he wants them to be? Now, there's things that the Bible says are clear sin, but there's a lot of stuff that we call gray areas. And the Bible says, what are you supposed to do? If you were to take the time, we don't have time tonight. I wanted to spend the whole evening on Romans 14, but we really can't because I got to keep moving. But if you go look at Romans 14, you'll see that God says this. He says, look, if you see it one way, another one sees these gray areas a different way. You don't judge the other person and you don't look down on the other person. Oh, but you need to be fully convinced in your own mind what you believe God is saying in this area. But if there's a different disagreement in this area, who are you to leave it to? God. And this will help us begin to move toward a spirit of unity. I got to be honest with you, folks. In my understanding of the scriptures, I don't believe the Bible teaches that a woman should be the pastor of a church. In my understanding of the scriptures, as I look at it. No, by the way, that doesn't mean that the woman can't speak in the church. 
the Bible actually says that when a woman prophesies in church, she needs to do it with her head covered. And it's talking about under the authority of the men that God has designed. And, and God's gotten in. We'll get actually get into some of this stuff as we go down the road in our study. But you know what? When I was a pastor in Chicago, there was a lady pastor who would meet with me once a month for counsel because she really needed some help with her local congregation. And you know what I did? I met with her once a month. And she knew where I stood. She understood that I didn't see that her role was really of God, but I also reached out to her and said, look, just because I don't see it the way you see it, if you think you're doing what God's telling you to do, you stay with what God's telling you to do. And I gave her counsel. I reached out to her in love. Why? Because that's really not something the Bible says I'm supposed to, well, as they say, choose which hill you're going to die on. That wasn't what I was going to die on. There's one body. There's one body. Now, as I've traveled the country, this has helped me a lot to see. I don't think, and not just the country, but also I've been to 12 different countries in, uh, in the world. Let me just tell you, folks, there's a benefit of getting outside of our little churches. Because we get kind of myopic and think our denomination is the only one got missionaries there. I'm not going to tell you where it was for the safety of the missionaries that were there, but I was preaching clandestine in a part of the world where these missionaries had asked me to come and speak to them. And they flew me in, and it was secret. And they all left where they were, and we met at a hotel in the, in the area. And I just happened to book into that hotel, and they just happened to all be on vacation at the same time and using the same hotel. And we met in one person's room. And I taught them the principles of a God-centered church for that week. When I finished teaching, they were, they were so excited. This was just one denomination's group of missionaries. They said, we know of other missionaries from other organizations that are also here in this city. Would you be willing to share this with them? They need to hear this too. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And they set it up that they put me in a taxi. I've never ridden a taxi in my life. The first time I'd ever ridden a taxi, and the only time I've ever ridden a taxi was in this one country in a part of the world that I would love to tell you where, but I can't because this is recorded. <laughs> And the taxi cab driver didn't speak English at all. He didn't know why I was there. And he had just been told, take this man to a certain part of the city, and when you get to a certain address, dial this number on the phone. Someone will stick their head out of a window four stories up and wave, and then they would come down. And they, this person then came and took me up into this apartment. And when I walked in, there were 30 people in that apartment, Christians from all over the world that had come to share the gospel, called of God to work in that one city. Here we were thinking, we're the only ones here. Folks, it blew my mind. I actually stopped and I said, could you just tell me, where are y'all from? What group are you with? And they were somewhere with uh, YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission, others were Campus Crusade, and there were so many different organizations. I was blown away at how many missionaries God had in that one part of the world that if I told you where, you'd say, there's missionaries there? I can tell you there's a lot. And as they went around and they told me their story, there was a husband from Canada and his wife was from Mexico. But they had met and God had sent them to this part of the world. Oh, let me just tell you, God's, he's doing stuff you don't see. And do you trust that he's able to get him where he needs to be? Hasn't he been patient with you and got you where he needs to be? You've already acknowledged tonight you don't believe the stuff that you used to believe and God's been getting you. You're moving on to maturity. You know what? Some of these churches around might not be doing it the way you would do it, and they might not be like their methods. And how Would you relax <laughs> and just believe that God is able to do what he said 
He do. The Bible says, Jim, that if you see someone in sin, yes, listen, Galatians 6.1 says, if you see someone in sin, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, you're to do it gently and in love. So until you're able to do that, why don't you just relax and you just let God remind you of this. There's one body. There's one body. He then moves on and he says, there's one spirit. Now, I want you to see this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think Paul is trying to make this pretty clear here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at how many times he keeps emphasizing the same spirit. Now, folks, even though we may not all understand things of God's spirit in the same way, it is still the same spirit. Listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but what? The same spirit. There are varieties of service or, or different ways in which God wants us to use the gifts, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. And some of your translations will say results. And it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for what? For the common good. That is very important. Burn that into your head. That'll help you realize whether or not someone, even though they say they're in the spirit or they're using their spiritual gifts, if they're not, if they're, it's not being used to build the body up, it's not a spiritual gift. It's someone blaming God for their bad behavior. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. We're going to get into all that kind of stuff down the road in our study. But again, according to what? End of verse 8. To the same Spirit. To another, faith by what? The same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing. By what? One Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Do you, you kind of catch what Paul's trying to get across? It's the same Spirit. But isn't it sad that things of the Spirit have been used to divide the church? Things of the Spirit has been used to cause more division in the church. Because those who claim that they have more spirit than you look down on those who don't manifest the Spirit in the way that they say you should manifest the Spirit. I don't want to get off into all that because I don't want to derail where we're going to go tonight. As we get further into the different gifts and stuff like that, we're going to get into this. We have to do this study because it will be valuable for us to really look at what is the Bible saying? What are these gifts? Because I'm going to talk to you and challenge you throughout this part of the study to find out what it is that God's done in your life. What are the gifts that he's given you? How does God want to use you? How do you fit into the body? What is your part? How does it all fit together so that you can experience what God wants to do through you? And so in order to do that, I'm going to have to talk to you about some of the things that are out there that you may or may not have. But for tonight, just get this. There's one body and what? One spirit. Now, like I said, if anyone uses their quote-unquote spiritual manifestation for causing division, they're not acting under the control of the one spirit who works everything for the common good. Then he also goes on, go back to Ephesians 4, and says there's one hope. Another translation of that could be one destiny. That's pretty simple, folks. Where are we all going? Heaven. And how many heavens are there? There's just really one heaven. Now, yes, you could get into, well, I mean, there's the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. No, no. He's talking about the, the one hope, the hope of heaven, the hope of glory, the hope of eternity with God. That's what he's talking about. And the sad thing is, that, is have you ever heard the jokes about the fact of 
the fact that some people think that not everybody's in the same heaven. You ever heard the, you, have you heard the joke about these two guys that are walking through heaven and he's getting a tour by St. Peter through here and they get to this one section. They say, hey, look at this and hey, look at that. Then they get to this one section. St. Peter says, we have to whisper here. And they whisper through that section and then they move on. And, and, and then finally the guy says, why did we have to whisper back in that section? And St. Peter says, well, it's because the Baptists are there. They think they're the only ones here, you know. <laughs> But you could put whatever denomination you want into. You understand what I'm saying? There's that tendency for us to think, well, well, let's just leave it the way it is. There's the one body, one spirit, one hope. We're all going to the same heaven. And who's the one that's getting us there? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. All right. Now, he then goes on and says there's one Lord. Now, I hope this one's pretty clear. But just to make sure, let's look at three passages of Scripture to kind of nail it down. John chapter 14, verse 6. Now, some of you could probably quote this, but I want you to know it. So some of you need to see this in your own, with your own eyes, because in a day and age in which we live, there are many who claim to be in the church who are saying that there are other ways to God. I actually talked to this one man who was a relative of mine, and he said, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not, you know, that's just the way that I'm connecting with God. There might be other ways. And I had to take him to this passage and say, look again at what Jesus said in verse 6 of John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. According to Jesus' words, is there any other way to get to God? No. Folks, if you think that Jesus is your way, but there might be other ways, Jesus lied. He said he's the only way. Well, let's look at another one. Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 12. And remember, if you, in our earlier study, Peter at this point when he says this is under the control, he's filled, he's under the control of the Holy Spirit. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And who's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. In Timothy, it talks about the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man. And then he clarifies it, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, again, folks, I'm not here to bash any denomination or anything like that. That's not my purpose. But I want you to understand, some of you were taught that you can get to God through Mary or through a saint. That contradicts Scripture. There's only one mediator between man and God. It's Jesus. And not only is He the only Savior of the world, He's the one Lord. Now, that means that I'm not your Lord. Your brother, your sister in Christ is not your Lord. One day when you stand before God, you're not going to stand before the preacher. You're not going to stand before your brother, or your sister. You're going to stand before, well, listen closely. You're going to stand before Jesus. See, a lot of people today, unfortunately, think, well, one day when I die, I'm going to stand before the big man upstairs and he's going to weigh my good and my bad. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 22. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this, God the Father judges no one, but he has handed all judgment over to the Son. Folks, we as Christians aren't going to go before the judgment seat of, sorry, the, the great white throne judgment. We'll go before the judgment seat of who? Christ. 
He's our Lord. But even the lost, even those who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, when the time comes for them to be sent to hell because of the rejection of God's one and only way for them to be made right, they're not going to be standing before God the Father saying, hey, measure my good and my bad. He said, look, I've already told you ahead of time. That's not going to be my call. I've handed that call over to the Son. Oh, and by the way, Jesus doesn't measure how good you've been or what you've done. Because he even says in Matthew 7, many on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? And didn't I do that? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons? I mean, that's some pretty cool stuff. And he says, I'm going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You go and look in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, and you're going to see that the five who didn't have the oil when the bridegroom came, and the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit, the, the five that didn't have the oil, they're going to run, and they're going to come back later, and they're going to knock on the door. And the scripture, you double check me and see, the guy on the inside of the door doesn't say you're too late. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. For the lost, they're going to stand before the one Lord. Because the Bible says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now, for those of us who are saved through Jesus Christ, we're going to one day be measured, not whether or not we're in heaven or not. That's already taken care of. We're going to be measured whether or not we've been faithful to do what he had for us to do. And guess what? You're going to stand before your Lord. And let me just tell you now. You're not going to be able to say, well, I didn't know you wanted that of me. It won't work. Because you can even blame your preacher. Well, he didn't teach on that stuff. OK, I'll deal with him when that time comes. But I gave you my word. My, and I blessed you to live in America. And you probably got five Bibles on your shelf. And you're going to sit there and try to tell me it's the preacher's fault because he didn't teach on the spiritual gifts. There's one Lord. And it's, oh man, it's been so freeing for me to realize that I'm not the Lord. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. For years as a pastor, I mean, kind of thought that I was like higher up than you. You wouldn't believe how many people, thought, you know, you even think that our prayers are more powerful. You ever notice that? Be at a church fellowship and the preacher's got to pray. Why? Does he have a connection with God that you guys don't have? I remember when I first became pastor in Chicago, uh, they had the basement underneath the sanctuary was where the fellowship hall was. And every Wednesday night, it was the same thing. When it was time for the Wednesday night supper, they'd say, Brother Jim, would you say the prayer? Well, I decided, why can't someone else pray? Well, we've always had the preacher pray. So one Wednesday night, I decided I wasn't going to be there when it was time for the, for, the, for the meal. And I went upstairs and I did a childish thing. I hid in a janitor's closet. <laughs> I did. And I could hear them down below going, where's Brother Jim? Food's getting cold. And they sent my kids to go look for me. They found me. <laughs> and I went, shh, get out of here. Just go. Finally, they said, oh, hey, Brother Bob, you want to say the prayer? We don't know where he is. And they came down and they got on me. Where were you? The food was getting cold. And this is what I told him. I said, the Bible says I'm supposed to be an equipper of the saints. If I haven't even equipped you to be able to say, Lord, thank you for this food. I'm pretty bad. I'm a failure. And began to try to teach them, look, I'm no different from you. I've got a different role than you, but I'm not closer to God. But over the years, because so many people think you are, I started to believe it. And I thought it was my job to tell you what God was telling you to do. And, and well, what do you think? I, and I thought it was my role to tell you. 
boy, it's so freeing to find out I'm not the Holy Spirit and I'm not the Lord. And one of my best answers now is, I don't know, go ask him. It's been a wonderful thing. I don't have to have all the Bible answers anymore. It's a wonderful thing. I'm going to share with you something in a little bit tonight that's kind of deep. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to say this is where I'm at. I want you to go wrestle with it. All right. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord. Then he says one faith. Now, just for the sake of time, let me just clarify here. When he talks about one faith, he's not talking about a certain set of beliefs. Because we always talk about how, well, there's the Methodist faith and the Presbyterian faith. And no, no, no. Remember, there's one faith. Whether it's Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever, if your faith is in Lord Jesus Christ for salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, and that's what makes us together. Now we may differ on some of the other stuff, but that's what it is. So when Paul talks here about one faith, he's not talking about a set of beliefs. This is the faith that is the, it's the simple childlike trust in God through Jesus for salvation in a right relationship. That's what this word faith is talking about. Now listen, I, I wrote in my notes this way, and I really want you to hear me on this. A child of seven years of age who trusts in God for their salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection shares the exact same faith as a 70-year-old Bible scholar. That's what he's talking about. Jesus said that this salvation, this faith, we should come to him like a child. It should be something a child should understand. We've tried to turn it into something too difficult and too hard. No, God has said that if you'll believe that he took care of your sin by himself coming down, taking on human form, living without sin and doing what you could not do by living without sin. And then God punished him instead of you and I. And he rose from the dead by his own power. And if you will believe that, that what he did covers you, he will give you the gift of eternal life. Guess what? If you believe that and you've asked Jesus to, re to receive or you've received his offer of salvation, and you've asked him to come live within your heart as you trust him for salvation and you're not trying to do it any other way. Totally believe that he's going to get me there because of what he did, you're in the faith. You're in the faith. Are there other stuff that God wants to teach us along the way? Sure. And he's going to use people like me and others. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are pastors and teachers, some are evangelists to equip you to understand the word and to grow in your knowledge of him. But if you understand salvation, you're in the faith. And that's all he's talking about. There's one faith. Then he goes on and he says, one baptism. Now, I wrote in my notes, Really? One baptism? But actually, Paul here is not talking about the form or mode of baptism. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the public profession of our faith. Because, see, i got to take a second to show you something scripturally here. Baptism nowadays is a little bit different from how it was back in the time that the scriptures were written here and the time that the early church had begun. Nowadays, if someone wants to trust Christ as their Savior, we have them pray a prayer, and then we schedule them to be baptized down the road. But I want to show you scripturally that actually back then, when a person re wanted to receive Jesus as their Savior, they didn't pray a prayer, they were baptized. That was their public profession of their faith. Now, in my understanding of the Scriptures, as I've wrestled with it, the mode was immersion. And if someone says, Jim, I want you to baptize me, I'll only do it with what makes me comfortable. Again, I'm not going to judge you or look down on you if you've had a different baptism and if you're comfortable with that. For me, according to Romans 14, I need to be fully convinced in my mind of what I think it is. And if you ask me to baptize you, it's going to be immersion. Amen. But that doesn't mean that another mode, because the mode isn't what saves us. It's not even the act that saves us. It's the act, attitude of our heart. But I want to show you scripturally that every time someone believed baptism was how they expressed it immediately. 
Look at, go with me to Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 through 41. Peter's preaching here. This is at Pentecost. In verse 37, this is at the end of his sermon. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for, every, for your children as well, who are far off, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls. As he was preaching, the Spirit of God convicted these people as they were listening, and they said, what do we do? He says, be baptized. Be baptized. That was their public profession of their faith. That was how they did it. Oh, we'll go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 26 to 38. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Does he say it about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, baptism must have been a part of the presentation because the eunuch sees water and says, well, what keeps me from being baptized? So Philip, in his presentation of what do you do, said, if you believe this, you get baptized. Well, let me show you one more place. Go to Acts chapter 10. Verses 34 through 48. So Peter, Acts 10, 34, he's in Cornelius' house, a Gentile. He says, well, Peter opened his mouth and said, Excuse me. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation and anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the, the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not only to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people to, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the 
the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they, then they asked him to remain for some days. They believed and were what? baptized. And so when, when Paul here is saying one body, one faith, one Lord, and so on, he says one baptism. What was your baptism? Why were you baptized? We're not talking about the mode. I didn't ask you what mode you had. Was your baptism after you trusted Christ as a profession of your faith in Jesus Christ? If that was it, you've been baptized. Again, like I say, you're going to ask me about mode. I can tell you what I think about mode, but it ain't going to be an issue to divide because I am pretty sure that when we stand before God, he's not going to say, well, what mode of baptism did you have? Because the thief on the cross didn't have any. And people try to get, well, that was a different time period. Jesus hadn't died yet and all this stuff. No. But let me just say this. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized after you trusted Christ? See, some of you were baptized when you were a baby and you didn't even know what happened. But the baptism here he's talking about is, is one that is a public profession of his faith. That's why I love churches doing it out in the ocean. We're blessed to be able to live where we are because it's supposed to be a public profession of your faith. There's nothing wrong with it happening in a sanctuary in a church, but only the believers pretty much see that. I think it's awesome when you kind of, well, I was baptized actually in, a, in Milton Three Ponds. In 19 September, I saw, yeah, September of 1973 in Milton Three Ponds up in New Hampshire. And uh, we had to rent the local boat ramp for an hour. And all the people that were wanting to launch their boats were all stacked up waiting for the boat ramp to be open. And all the people out on the lake wanting to use the boat ramp to get back in were all stacking out out there in the lake. And it was awesome. And all, we, were, we were out there getting baptized. It was a cool, cool thing. But there's one baptism. And then he goes on and says, one God. And he clarifies. Go back to Ephesians 4 and look at how he describes this one God. He says also, in one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me just paraphrase that for you. One God who does it all. All right. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says that from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. It's all about God the Father. Folks, that's why we need to be careful and aware of any cult of personality. We should never glorify the individual that God uses, but should glorify the God who uses them. That was a problem in the church in Corinth. You don't have time to look there. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll see that the church there in Corinth was all starting to divide. They're starting to get up in their little camps. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Christ. And they were all arguing with each other. And Paul had to remind them and say, look, there's just one we follow. And that's Jesus. Has God used certain people in your life? I hope so, because that's his plan. That's how he's designed it. But at the same time, don't say that I, I'm a follower of this person or that person. No. There's one God who does it all. And we follow him. Now, I want to read to you now chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Actually, 7 through 10. We'll just stop at verse 10 for tonight. And we're going to start diving into one of the most tricky, sticky passages in the whole Bible. So we're just going to start tiptoeing into it tonight. We'll continue to next week and we'll see how far we get. 
He then goes on and says, after he was reminding everybody about the unity of us all and how there's one, 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 we're all together. Verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is the passage we're going to take some time to break down. And as you're about to see as we do this, there's a lot of discrepancy over the years among Bible scholars and different people of the interpretation of this passage and what's he saying. And some people are saying that it's referring to this or that and the other. We're going to wrestle with all that. But let me just tell you now, what God showed me as I began to really dive into this, and I'm not saying this for any other reason, just to tell you this is not something I've skimmed over. This is something that I've actually wrestled with for my life of Bible study. And what God has shown me in my study for this Bible study now is actually something I've never seen before. And I'm actually going to share with you something as we look at it for this week and next week that is deeper than I've ever gotten. And for the first time in my spirit, I feel like what he showed me lines up with the whole of Scripture. I've actually taught other things in this passage over the years. But I think that what God has shown me, it, you, ever, you, ever been, you ever been to that point where you're reading something and you kind of heard how someone taught on you're like, well, maybe, but it just it didn't seem right. But you didn't have any real reason to say why not. For the first time, I'm starting to get a peace from my spirit with the spirit of God within me that I'm getting closer to what it really is talking about. Now, let me tell you, just today I spent three to four hours on it and I've been wrestling with this for a while. Just today, I spent three to four hours on it. I even called some of my Bible scholar guys and said, okay, here's what God's shown me. What do you think? And as we wrestled with it on the phone and we looked at it and we were looking, well, look at this and go here. And even my Bible scholar buddy said, you might have something there. So what I want to do is I want to break this down into how God began to open my eyes to it. Because you see here, Paul says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And by the way, uh, what is the measure of Christ's gift? Can you measure Christ's gift? It's unmeasurable. So all he's saying there is, is um, don't think that whatever you've been given by God, spiritual gift-wise, is a little. <laughs> it's in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. All right. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly places with what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Please understand that even though the gift or gifts that you've been given by God that he wants to use through you in the body may not be as public as some others, don't think for a second, well, I wish I had so-and-so's gift because their gift is much bigger. Their gift is much, uh-uh. You've been given gifts in proportion to the measure of Christ's gift. It's, it's pretty impressive and pretty powerful. So just that's all he says there. But then he quotes from Psalm 66, 18. I'm going to read to you again verse 8, and then we're going to go to Psalm 66, 18. And can anybody tell me what's different? All right. And in verse 8, he says, therefore, it says, and he quotes from Psalm 6, oh, sorry, not 66, 68, Psalm 68, verse 18. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. All right. Keep your bookmark there. Tom, turn back with me to Psalm 68, verse 18. This is where he quotes from. Psalm 68, verse 18. I'm going to read it to you. 
It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Anybody notice, besides a few words here and there, a major difference? One's giving, one's receiving. I gotta be honest with you, when I was looking at that, I was like, whoa. All right, Paul, you're obviously quoting from here, but you said that you gave gifts to men, but the passage you quote from says that the one ascending received gifts. And this sent me on a fun study. Now, if we're going to interpret a passage and we're gonna hopefully get the correct interpretation, what are the two things we have to do? I've been burning this into your brain. What's the first we can look at? Context. context. We must look at context, not only of the Ephesians passage, but also of the Psalm 68 passage. Now, once we think we have a context, contextual interpretation that we think is right, what do we then do next? Check it against the whole of Scripture. If what we've pulled out in the context matches against the whole of Scripture, then most likely you got the correct interpretation. We're not going to have time tonight to get all that done. We're going to start wading into it. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of break down for you the context of Psalm 68. See, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. He's one of these guys that, you know, as he was being used of the Spirit to write this letter to the churches there that was going to start in Ephesus and move on to, as you know, the cyclical letter. As he's writing and he's dealing with this one issue of spiritual gifts and he's about to move into the fact that he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers, his brain under the leadership of the Spirit, is brought back to this passage from Psalm 68 that he knows about. And he quotes from it to illustrate what he's trying to say and where he's going next. So there's a connection here that we got to find. For the sake of time, I'm just going to have you read with me a couple of passages from Psalm 68. We're not going to look at the whole thing. But Psalm 68 is a psalm of praise declaring God's mighty works in leading them as a nation of Israel through the wilderness, and it culminates with a view of God's ultimate ruling and reign from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. Okay? So I'm going to say that to you again. Psalm 68 is a psalm of praise declaring God's mighty works and making a people for himself, leading them through the wilderness, and then it culminates in a view of God's ultimate reign and ruling and reign from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. So what I want us to do is I'll show you some of these passages that kind of illustrate this. Let's look at Psalm 68 verses 1 through 5. It says to the, the, the chief choir master, who, who wrote this psalm, by the way? David. David, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his what? Holy habitation. Hey, we've got a picture of God in his dwelling place. That's important. He set up the stage. He said, hey guys, the wicked, watch out. God's coming and he's going to be in his holy dwelling place and the wicked are going to be dispersed. The righteous are going to be made right. But then now look at verses 7 through 10. And he reminds and he remembers of what God did in the past. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. 
Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, and you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And he reminds them of what God had done, taking them out of Egypt and into the wilderness and how he was going before them to take care of them. Now, jump to verses 24 through 35, the end of the psalm here. And look closely at how it's talking about when he's literally going to come and rule and reign on the earth. He says, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O, o you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Now, we know that the Bible shows us that one day when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem and he's going to ascend and he's going to go to that place and he's going to rule and reign from there. But there were also pictures of that throughout Israel's history of God coming to indwell the tabernacle or the temple, right? You know what I'm talking about. There are times, and actually there are times when you'll see these processions where he would go into his temple. But how did God dwell in the tabernacle, in the temple back then? In the Holy of Holies, in what? In the Ark of the Covenant. Who are the only ones allowed to carry the Ark? The Levites. This is very important for us here, folks. Stick with me here because I want to at least get this bunch of it in for tonight before we move on to next week. Because I really don't can't stop in the middle of this. Look at verse 18 now. You ascend on high. This is the part that Paul quoted from. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men or from among men is a good translation. Even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, what I want to show you is I and I think I can show you from from the context here and also from the scriptures. I believe that the captives are the ones who have been redeemed. And they're the ones he received the gifts from and the gifts are them. All right. For years, people have said this is a picture of when a foreign army would defeat their foe and then they would take all the captives and parade them through the street. Yes, that is the case, and that's what happened to the nation of Israel when they were taken into captivity in Babylon. But were the Jews ever allowed to take captives? No, they weren't. God said, no, you're to wipe them all out. And the time Saul didn't do what God said, and he kept captives, he got in trouble for it, and Samuel killed them right there on the spot. The Jews weren't allowed to parade captives. That's not a picture of who God is, parading captives. And for years, scholars have said, this is a picture, and they used... A Gentile thing. And actually, go back and look at a verse we skipped over. We skipped right over one verse on purpose. Look at verse 6. 
God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the who? The prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Here in this context, he says, God, you're coming. Watch out, world. You're coming to live in your holy habitation. And the righteous are going to be okay. The wicked are going to be wiped out. And it culminates in him ascending to his holy mountain on Jerusalem and ruling and reigning. In there, he, though, reminds them of the wilderness. He also has a little picture there in verse 18 of when he entered into the tabernacle. And how was he able to even, well, it says there in verse 18, you, in receiving gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Who was the only ones who were able to be there, to ascend with him, so that he could dwell there? It was the priests. This is important. Go with me now to Numbers. Put a bookmark here. Go with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 8. Numbers, chapter 8, and we'll start in verse... Start in verse uh, 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people, that's important, from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. This shall you do to them and cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering, and you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering, as a gift, as a wave offering from among the people of, the, of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the herds of the bulls, and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burn offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering, again, a gift to the Lord. But it gets even more clear. Thus shall you separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be whose? Mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in and serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Go back to Psalm 68 again. I told you to put a bookmark there and I didn't do it. There it is. Look at verse 6 again. God settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Look at verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. By the way, where is he taking these captives? He's taking them with him to glory or up. This isn't parading prisoners that are going to be going to hell. And God never told the nation of Israel to do that. But he also says, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. I think this is a picture. Again, you don't have to take Jim's word for it. Because I'm going to show you in Ephesians 4 where Paul goes going, the context fits. If you want to look later on, you can see in Isaiah 42, 1-7 or Isaiah 61, 1. Again, the picture of God releasing the captives. I think the captives are believers. And, and specifically in this situation, they're the reference to the Levites being brought as a gift to him. He received them as gifts 
from among the people so that he could dwell there. And Paul's quoting from this passage, and where is he heading? He's moving to the spiritual gifts given by God, and what does he do when he gets to verse 11? He gave gifts to men. He received gifts. We are the Lord's. Doesn't the Bible say that we are given to God by, from God to Jesus as a gift? And all those whom the Father gives him? But he receives the gifts, but he also gives his gifts back to the church. And he gave some, just like the Levites, to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. I think, in my understanding of what I think God's shown me here, that Psalm 68 is a picture of God ascending. And he was able at that time to do it because of the gifts that he was able to receive, which were the Levites, the captives that he had taken with him in ascending into his holy place. And that was what made it possible for him to dwell there. And then Paul, knowing how this ties together in his mind through the Spirit, he quotes from this passage and he says, and he twists it and says, he gave gifts to men. He received them, yes, because you have to receive them in order to give them. He received them and then he gave them to us. Now you say, Jim, I might be with you, but what about that descending into the lower part of the regions of the earth? Because some people say that's where he went and he dealt with the spirits in prison. And we're going to deal with all that next time we get together. But let me just show you. Go real quick to Ephesians chapter four. Look closely at what it says. I'm going to show you next time we get together. I don't believe this passage is referring to Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison. Uh, there are passages that deal with that. We're going to get into that next time we get together. But look closely. And if you do a study of the actual words here, you'll realize he's not talking about below the earth. He's just referring to the earth itself. Look at the context. He says again in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Not royal regions of the earth, it's lower regions, the, namely the earth. Remember, we've already seen earlier, he talks about how he went into the highest heavens. Here he's talking about, he, he's just saying when he descended, he descended to the earth. He's talking about his incarnation. Again, some people have tried to take this passage and make it say things about Sheol and there's paradises in the center of the earth. We'll get into all that next week. But let me just say to you, go check what I just said against Scripture. Don't believe it because Jim said it. But I think what Paul's referring to here is in the connection, Psalm 68, 18 and Ephesians 4, 8 are combined because he moves how those people, those Levites were a gift that God received that he then was able to dwell with them. And in the same way, there are going to be those leaders in the church that God has received unto himself, but now he gives them as a gift to the churches. I hate to tell you, but I'm a gift. <laughs> but as a gift to the churches. And he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And all of a sudden this passage starts to unlock. But we'll have to get into the rest of that next week. Let me pray for us. Father. Thank you for the way that we, in which your spirit is able to show me how to kind of bring this to a close for tonight, because there's so much more I want to show and so much more we really need to take a look at and a lot more passages to wrestle with. But Lord, for now, I know, Lord, that there are people that are probably listening right now online that say, no, what about this and what about that? And Lord, thank you for the fact that we don't have to try to convince anybody ourselves. And your word says that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and following, that the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hope that God will bring him to an understanding. And Lord, as you know, I'm still in the process of learning what you're showing me through your word. But at this point right now, 
I think this is something that's kind of exciting as you're starting to unlock this passage. Bring us back next week as we look at it some more. And Lord, may none of us think we have it figured out. But may we allow you to continue to bring us to a full knowledge of you and to the fullness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.